0: At North Point Community Church, we are passionate about helping our community move toward a life fully devoted to Jesus. And we hope this message helps you do that. Thank you for tuning in. It is great to be back. Uh, We were on vacation last week. And to you who are watching online, that's where I was last week. It was really fun to be able to join with you here at 930. from Missouri last Sunday morning, and see people from Florida and uh, people who are around. So uh, when you're not here, be sure and, and do that. Take advantage of the live stream or, or catch, up, catch in later. But we're glad you're here. We're, we're glad each of you are here. Have you ever faced one of those situations that you felt like was just impossible? It was one of those things that you thought, there is no way that this is ever going to work out. It, the, the obstacle is too big. There are too many pieces to it. I can't manage it at all. Um, for Deb and I, we, we experience, we've experienced that kind of multiple times. But one time I remember in, in particular, in 2008, we were getting ready to move from a ministry in, in northern Virginia and to move to Ohio. Um, it was 2008, and, um, and we are working through stuff. We were living on kind of a tight budget with six kids and making that move and, and doing the thing. And um, we put our house up for sale, and did I mention it was 2008? The housing bubble burst kind of like a balloon at a six-year-old's birthday party. Uh, it was bad. Um, and, and as we prepared to make the move and to go to this new church... Uh, it was a smaller church, a, a little bit smaller salary, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, we r- realized that we were going to have to get a separate insurance um, policy, medical insurance policy for our son, Joe. The year before, he had had open heart surgery. They had found a congenital heart defect. and um, And so... As I got ready to make the move and looked at that, uh, the bill for that, the cost of that insurance policy for Joe with the pre-existing condition was going to be $10,000 a year. We were living on a tight budget. There was not margin. There was no way that we thought anything. Uh, I, I, I literally did not know what was going to happen. It was too big. It was impossible. Have you, have you been there? Have you experienced that? Maybe it's not a financial thing. Maybe for you, it's, it's something else. It's a relational piece. Maybe it's, you know, you're trying to have a baby and you can't and you think, this is just too big. It's, it's never, it's never going to work out. I, I don't know what to do, God, because the, the obstacle is so large and the options are so few. It's just impossible. Um, what do you do when you face that? You know, do you go fetal? Do you just crawl up in a circle in bed and <laughs> pull the covers over your head and say, ah? Do you go, you know, do you go get drunk and just escape? Do you start barking at your wife, at your spouse, at your kids and, and kind of go that route? Do you just pour yourself into your work and think, you know what, if I can just work harder, everything's gonna, maybe I, maybe I just don't have to pay attention to it. How, how do you respond when you face an impossible situation? Do you blame people? God. Say, God, why did you allow me to come into this situation? There's a story in the Old Testament. We're, we're looking at things that are old but still true. There's a story in the Old Testament that speaks to this whole idea of what it looks like to be facing an impossible situation. The story is old. It happened 3,000 years ago, but it's a real story, and it still has legs. It still has application for us today. So if you've got your Bibles, take them out. Turn to First Samuel 17. Um, and, uh, and I, I really want to encourage you to do that. If you've got the app, open that up. If you have a phone and maybe you don't have the North Point app, open it up into like the U version app or whatever, because we're going we're gonna to go all the way down through chapter 17. And I hope that you'll follow along and you'll kind of read as I, I, as I tell the story. Um, it describes one of the greatest battles in history. A situation that was so impossible, it paralyzed everyone involved except for one solitary teenager. 1 Samuel 17 starts this way. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdamon between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. This is what it looked like. This is the valley of Elah today. This path, this valley that goes down through here is about a half mile long and it's about a hundred yards wide. The Philistines uh, camped on top of one side of, the mount, uh, on one side of the valley, the Israelites on the other side of the valley. If you can picture this, these—it's hard to tell scale in this whole thing. These are hills, mountains um, that are—they're kind of like the Appalachian foothills, if that helps. So if you think southeastern Ohio, if you've ever ever been there, eastern Kentucky—they're—they're they're not like the Rockies, not like the Smoky Mountains, but they're bigger than the than the dirt bike hills in Langsburg. Okay, yeah, have have some sense of, of what that's like. Israelites on one side, Philistines on the other. Uh, It's important to know that this is a real place, that these are real people, and this is describing something that really happened, okay? Um, Archaeologists have found evidence of the Philistines in this area, in this part of Israel from 3,000 years ago, the time of David. Real people, real place, real stuff. It's interesting that archaeologists have actually found in the Philistine camps that they've uncovered shards of pottery that have writing on them that translates to the letters for the name Goliath. We don't know that it's the same Goliath, but we do know that that was a name that was used by the Philistines at this time in history. Um, Verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing five thousand shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves, and on a and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear, his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed six hundred shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Now, this is great, right? You're impressed. It doesn't make any sense because these are not measurements that we use. A cubit is from the top of your finger to the bottom of your elbow. For most people, that's about 18 inches, all right? A span is to take your hand and to go from here to here. So Goliath is somewhere between probably eight feet tall and nine and a half feet tall. For perspective, um, this is not going to help you if you're watching at home, but if you look at these lights, they're about 10 feet above the stage level. Do you understand the size of Goliath? He probably weighed close to 600 pounds. His armor weighed 125 pounds when when you translate the measurements that are there. The tip of the spear weighed 15 pounds, and it says the shaft of that spear was like a weaver's rod. A weaver's rod typically is about two and a half inches, so about the size of my little finger in diameter, all right? And uh, a weaver's rod is about five feet tall, yay tall, but for Goliath, it probably would have been somewhere between eight and 12 feet for him to be able to wield that spear with that 15 pounds on the end of it, this is a mammoth guy. Um, Malcolm Gladwell cites some studies that, that says that, that Goliath probably uh, dealt with a with a, a tumor on his uh, pituitary. Uh, that he had gigantism um, in um, in other other places in Scripture. It mentions Goliath's brothers and some of his uh, of his family who were also giants like this. This guy is mammoth. Um, it's interesting that, again, real people, real place, real time, that the description of Goliath's armors, the, the greaves that, that it said, the, it's a word that we don't typically use. If you think soccer shin guards, that's what he had on his shins. So we know he was a soccer player, right? Uh, a guy, Goliath liked that. Verse eight Goliath's, uh, 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 let me just finish that thought. The armor that's described there is consistent with the armor that was worn. A 1,000 years before Christ. Interesting, interesting. Real people, real place, real stuff. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill you, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Do you understand what Goliath says? He says, This is is what I want to do. I'm calling you out. You send your best guy to come fight me. We'll fight, and whoever wins, that's the end of the battle. If I win, you become our slaves. If If the guy you send wins, we become your slaves. There's no sense in everybody dying in this battle. We're just going to go one-on-one, mano a mano, winner take all. That's the picture that's there. And again, interestingly enough, other ancient documents say at this time in history, this was a common battle tactic. The two tribes would come against each other, two people groups, two nations would fight against each other, and they'd just send their best against each other. And that would be it, so that the other, uh, the, the losing um, side, would become slaves. David is introduced in verse 12. If you're looking down, scanning through there, he's the youngest of eight brothers. His father is Jesse. The three oldest brothers have enlisted in the in the Israeli army. They're, they're at the battle, they're fighting for Israel against the Philistines. And it's helpful to know, just contextually, that the war is not like. Uh, hundreds of miles away. It's not like it's across an ocean. The Valley of Elah is less than 20 miles from Jerusalem, the capital city in Israel. It's less than 15 miles from Bethlehem, where, where David was. And so, if you, again, if, you're, if you just scan down through there, it says that David would go back and forth to Saul. In chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, um, Saul is described as the Holy Spirit leaving him. He had rejected God. He had left, left him. And he was troubled by a, by a demonic spirit. Um, and when he would, would go into these fits, um, his advisors would call David to come and play on his harp. A kind of a, a spiritual music therapy for Saul. So David would go back and forth to the battle. And as it describes in in this situation, um, he's close by. Verse 16 says, for 40 days, the Philistine, Goliath, came forward every morning and every evening and took a stand. 80 times Goliath has stood and called out the Israeli army to say, hey, send me somebody so that I can fight. David's father, Jesse, asked David to go and resupply his brothers. They're fighting. Again, they're, they're only 15 or so miles away. It's like going from here to, to Holt, other side of Lansing, not very far at all. And so he asks David to take some uh, home-cooked meal stuff to his brother's. He leaves early in the morning, he gives control of the sheep because David's a shepherd, he gives control of his sheep to another shepherd, and he goes to see what's going on and to talk to his brothers. Um, He gives the food that he brings to the mess sergeant and, um, and finds his brothers, and he's talking to them when Goliath comes out and in a big booming voice offers his challenge to the army of Israel. Again, if you picture that Valley of Elah, you can imagine Goliath's voice filling that area as the sound echoed off the walls. As soon as Goliath walks forward, the Israelites cower in fear. Can you picture it in your mind? The Israelite army, as they're as they're back on their side, they're they're trying to encourage each other. They say, "You go, you go fight him. You go fight him. You go fight him. You, no, you go fight. I'll let you go fight. You, see what's going on." And as they're talking, they say, "Hey, somebody's got to go fight him." And this is what the king has said. The king has said that if if the person who goes to fight him wins, they'll get rich. The king will give them riches. He's going to give them his daughter to marry. So his status will go up like crazy and he won't have to pay taxes for the rest of his life. April 15th will become a holiday for this guy that defeats Goliath. You go fight him. Eh, No, you go fight him. See what's going on. And David says, wait a second. This guy is taunting God's army and Saul's really promise to give all this stuff to the guy who wins, he says, he says this line that I think is the heart of this story. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Who is this guy who's ungodly, who doesn't know God, and, and he's calling us out and nobody's responding? David says to the other soldiers, is he for real? And they say, "No, really." Whoever go fights him, whoever goes and fights him is going to get all these prizes. Eliab, David's oldest brother, gets angry at David in the way only an older brother can. Anybody got older siblings? When you make a suggestion, um, they can make you feel stupid, right? They can put you down. That's exactly what Eliab says. What he does. He looks at David like David doesn't have a clue. And he says, what are you even doing here? Shouldn't you be out taking care of the sheep? Don't you have sheep to take care of, boy? Um, Who do you think you are? You are so full of yourself. You You just came so that you could watch people die. You just came to watch the battle from the sidelines. And David, in kind of classic, in a classic way, turns to his brother and says, what? Am I not even allowed to talk? Um... Can you picture what's going on here? David David recognizes what's going on here in a way that Eliab doesn't. He turns away from his brother, and he begins to talk more to the other soldiers and say, what is going on here? The, the, the conversation that he is having with the other soldiers works its way up the chain of command and gets to Saul. And Saul calls for David to come and talk to him. David says to Saul when he gets there, he says, Look, nobody needs to be afraid. I'm going to go fight him. And Saul, Saul says, You can't do that. You're just a kid. David's probably 15 years old, maybe 18 years old. You can't do that. This guy's a warrior soldier. He's been killing people since before you were born. You can't do it. And David says, No, look, I can handle myself. I have been in battle before, I'm a shepherd. Lions and bears have come and taken sheep, and I've rescued those sheep. Look what he says, verse 36. Your servant has killed both lion and the bear. The uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. If you look right before that, David says that he grabbed the hair of the lion and the bear. Hand-to-hand combat with them. And Saul says, okay, bless your heart. You know, when somebody says bless your heart, it means that you are the stupidest person around, right? (laughs) Oh, bless your heart. Saul says, oh, okay, you go ahead. May God be with you, David, because you're going to need it because you're going to die. What you're going to do is impossible. It can't happen. But if you're going to do it, go ahead and wear my armor. Take my sword. Again, if you think historically about Israel and about when Saul became king, Saul is head and shoulders above anybody else in Israel. It describes that he's taller than everybody else. So when David puts on Saul's armor, it uh, David feels like a dwarf in that. It's, uh, D- David feels like he's got like catcher's gear and a hazmat suit both on. He can't move. He's used to wearing a t-shirt and shorts, just being able to to move and do his stuff as a shepherd. And he says to Saul, no, I can't wear this. I've just got to take what I'm used to. And so he grabs his staff, takes his pouch, goes down to the brook that's in the center of the valley, picks out five stones, puts them in his pouch, takes his sling, and begins to move towards the battle. Um, Goliath sees David, and he is genuinely offended that David is coming out to fight him. Goliath wants a real fight. You know, he he wants blood and guts. He wants a contest. He wants to exercise his muscles, and he sees this what he thinks is a little boy that is going to be as hard to defeat as eating a bowl of oatmeal for breakfast. Right? Verse forty-two. Goliath looks David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks because David's got his shepherd staff? Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And David responds with some serious smack talk. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut your head off. This day, I will give, not, you talked about giving my body to the birds. This day, I will give the carcasses of the entire Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. And then something really strange happens. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran toward the battle line. Everybody else has been run away. David ran toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. Goliath takes this shot to his head, and it's like a boxer that takes one right on the jaw and instantly is down. That's what happens as that stone hits his head. Now, if you're a skeptic, you may be thinking, wait, is it really possible with a sling, you know, not a slingshot like this, but with a sling to sling a rock and to do this? Historians tell us that in the armies of this day, there were entire companies of slingers, That that they could be accurate up to 200 yards to hit a target with their sling. And that that they could take a a rock the size of a baseball and fire it at about 100 miles an hour. So if you can picture in your mind a Rawlins Chapman firing one of his fastballs and it hitting Goliath square in the forehead, you understand why Goliath goes down in an instant. He's not dead, but he's unconscious. And David walks over and takes Goliath's sword out of his limp hand, picks it up, and with his strength and the power of gravity, wields that sword and cuts off Goliath's head. And then things get really crazy, right? Um, the... the uh, The Philistines don't surrender as Goliath said they would. They take off and scatter. They run for the hills, and the Israelite army comes down from the hills, chases, pursues the Philistines, and kills them. Once once they've gone as far as they can, they've gotten as many of the army as they can. the, The Israeli army comes back and plunders the Philistine camp that was up on the side of that hill. They take all of their stuff, all their tents, all their treasures, all their money, all their stuff. They take it for their own, and they head back to Jerusalem. David carries Goliath's head back to Jerusalem. Yeah, that's pretty cool, huh, right? Um, and David takes his armor and, um, and puts it in his tent. In, uh, he has like a trophy case there that he has Goliath's uh, 125 pounds breastplate, his javelin, all that stuff. Um, the thing that everyone thought impossible that morning wasn't. David killed Goliath. Goliath. Let me return to my original question in the message. What is it that you're facing that seems impossible? What is it in your life that you look and you think, God, it's too big. There's no way I can handle it. Maybe the giant that you face is finishing school that you think, There's just, I can't balance everything. I can't do that. Maybe it's something that's going on and and you can't have kids. You're facing a giant of infertility and you think, God, we've done everything. It's impossible. Maybe you're facing financial giants that you've got some bills that you're looking at that you think there is no way that this can come together. Um, Maybe it's a relational giant that you think, God, the life is out of my marriage. It's looking like it's just gonna fall apart, and that's the giant. Maybe it's a broken relationship that you have with someone else that you think, will, will that ever recover? Maybe it's a physical, a medical thing that is the giant in your life. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe your giant is the coronavirus and how people respond to it. It's just always there, and it won't go away. Maybe the giant that is in your life is something that has happened to you in the past that has this hold on you that can't be broken. What is it that you think is impossible? Maybe it's a spiritual giant. Maybe you think, yeah, I know I'm supposed to join a life group. I can't, it's just too big. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to give consistently to the church, but there's just not enough money. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to, I, I wanna say yes to Jesus, but I just don't know if I can. I know I need to take that step of baptism, but there's, it, just seems, it just seems impossible, God. Maybe, maybe it's the challenge to record how Jesus is working in your life on video. That's, that's just too big. It's impossible. How will you respond to that giant in your life? To those things that seem impossible. I think when you look at the story of David, it's in, it helps to put things in perspective and say there are four main characters in this story. Goliath had one perspective about how to deal with the impossible. Goliath thought that it was impossible that he could be defeated, right? He he thought, there's no way I can lose. He trusted in his power, in his strength, in his weapons, in his resources. And he said, I can take care of the impossible. That, that's impossible. I'll just rely on myself. Some of you are thinking, you know what? That giant, I'm going to figure it out. I'm just going to blast my way through like, like Goliath. I can do it on my own. It didn't work for Goliath. He thought to be defeated would be impossible, and it wasn't. King Saul, uh, some of us respond like King Saul. King Saul actually should have taken responsibility for this battle. King Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel, but he wasn't as tall as Goliath. And he looked at the size of Goliath and the size of himself, and he said, I can't do it. I, I can't do it. And so how did he respond? King Saul, King Saul was afraid, and he said, you know what? Somebody else take care of this for me. I'll make it lucrative for him. I'll give him all these things. If somebody else will just solve this problem, for some of us, we look at the impossible, and we say, you know what? If I can just get somebody else to do what I know I need to do, it'll be okay. And we try and find a way to accomplish the impossible through other people. Some of us respond like Eliab, David's older brother. We just look at the impossible and it scares us to death. We're frightened. And so we take that fear and we transfer it to everybody outside of us. We yell at people. We kick the dog. We we have broken relationships in our life because we won't face that problem. Uh, Eliab is discouraged. I think he's embarrassed that nobody will respond to Goliath. And so he lashes out at David rather than deal with the real issue. The discouraged becomes the discourager of everyone else around. And then there's David, right? David sees this situation and doesn't even think that it's impossible. Even though he's only 15 or 18 years old, David looks at the the impossible and sees the power of God. David focuses on the power of God. He doesn't look at the size of Goliath. He doesn't look at his armor or his weapons. He looks at the power of God. He was able to see what was really at stake in this battle. It was the reputation of God, the trust that he had in God. Goliath had made made fun of the the living God, and David wasn't just going to stand there and take it. He was going to defend God. He knew that God was bigger than Goliath. He knew that God was stronger than Goliath's strength. He knew that God's weapons were bigger than than Goliath's weapons. David could see with clarity what no one else could see. Not Goliath, not Saul, not his oldest brother Eliab. David knew that the battle wasn't his to win. It was God's to win. He didn't trust Saul's armor He trusted God. You know what leaders do? Leaders define reality. They help you see what's really at stake. David listened to the taunts of Goliath and said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? David gave a completely different perspective because he saw the power of God. David also had history. He had history trusting God. David knew what God had done in the past. David knew the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. But he also knew how God had worked in his life in the immediate past. He's able to tell the king about how God helped, res- helped him rescue his lambs from the hands, from the paws of lions and bears. Verse 37, the Lord rescue me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. David recognized the way that God had worked in his life. David saw the battles that God had won. If you're facing the impossible right now, I want to challenge you to take a look historically in your life at how God has worked in the past. And to and to recognize that if he has worked in the past, he'll work in the present and he'll work in the future. I want, hear hear me in this too. I want to encourage you as you face these battles, the battles that you're facing right now will prepare you for the battles that are coming in two weeks or two months or two years or 20 years. There will be a time that you look back and say, you know what? God sustained me through COVID-19. God brought me through that period that was just so difficult in our nation. God showed himself in that. And that will lead us to be able to trust him in the future. But we've got to do it now. David challenged Goliath because of his faith. He challenged Goliath because of his faith. But he defeated Goliath because of his preparation and skill. Because he had put in the time before trusting God, it prepared him for this battle. David ran toward the battle as well. So interesting, verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to to meet him. If you're facing a situation that seems impossible, I just want to encourage you to run toward the battle because our immediate reaction, the thing that we do most often is run away from it, right? I don't wanna deal with that. I don't wanna take care of it. Run toward the battle. That's what David did. Run with confidence that God has the power, God has the ability to defeat the impossible. Lastly, David didn't take credit for the impossible. Verse 47 says, uh, David's, David's calling back out to Goliath and he says, all those who gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you Into our hands. Don't miss the pronouns in that. David could have said, you know what? I'm going to take your head off and I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to kill all you Philistines. David said, look, here's the deal. The battle is God's. And what's going to happen is all of your army is going to lose to our army. It's not going to be my victory. It's going to be our victory that happens because of God. This story may be old, but it's still true for us. It still makes sense. It still applies to our life. So the question is when you're facing an impossible situation, who are you gonna be? Are you gonna be Goliath trying to take care of it on your own? Are you gonna be Saul and get somebody else to take care of it? Are you gonna be Eliab and just be afraid and cower and blame others? Or are you going to be David? With God, the impossible isn't. The impossible isn't. I, I remember talking to our life group about that issue when uh, when we were in Virginia getting ready to move to Ohio in two thousand eight. I I I I I got to tell you, I was afraid. I did not. I just didn't see any way. I didn't know what we were going to do about Joe's medical insurance. I. There was no way it could happen. And I asked our life group to pray about it two weeks before we left, but before we moved. And um, after life group that night, one of the guys, a guy who was um, highly unlikely, no, you just would not have expected it from him. He came up to me and he said, um, you know what, while we were praying, God nudged me and I wanna take care of the cost of the insurance for your son for the first year. And he wrote a check for $10,000 for us. Interestingly enough, as that year wound down, uh, President Obama had been elected, the Affordable Care Act was passed, and um, pre-existing conditions were done away with. And Joe's insurance was able to be folded into our family's insurance. God didn't always work that way with somebody writing a check. You know, but it was an impossible situation that God showed himself in. I say that just to encourage you. No matter what you're facing, no, no matter how, uh, how big that giant feels, God has the ability to step in and to change that situation, to show his power. Can I, can I tell you why I chose this particular passage in this series that I wanted us to study because there are so many lessons from the Old Testament that we can take and apply that are still true, that still still are meaningful for us. It's because of this because my sense is so many of us are so discouraged. We're discouraged because of COVID. We're discouraged because of the political climate in our country. And we look and we say, God, it's just too big. It's impossible to get through this time. Um, Like the army of Israel, we think it's never gonna change and it's going to overwhelm me. Satan whispers in our ear over and over again, it's impossible to start a new life free from the power and the bondage of sin. It's impossible to have peace and joy when the person that you love dies and leaves this life. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus, in talking to his disciples, said about a teaching that he had given. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. But with God, everything is possible. The Apostle Paul said when he's writing to the church in Philippi, he says, You know what? I've had a lot and I've had a little and I've had a little. I've learned to be content in all circumstances. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He wasn't talking about skill or ability to do stuff. He was saying, you know what? I can live in any situation that God leads me into because of the power of God. In Mark chapter nine, a dad brings his boy to Jesus, and his boy is is demon possessed, and it's and the symptoms of that possession are that that um, that that he has like epileptic fits that that he, he goes into this fit and he falls in fire and he falls in water and, it, and it's killing him. And the dad brings this boy to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you can, would you show mercy to him? And Jesus says, if I can, anything is possible if a person believes. And the father cried out instantly, scripture says, I do believe, help me with my unbelief. This story may be old, but it's still true. God has the ability to deal with our impossible situations. And our prayer needs to be, God, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the power of your word. God, I thank you that that you speak into every situation in our lives. God, I know in this room there are people who are struggling with so many things, people who are watching now that that are just at wit's end. God, we say to you together, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. Show your power in us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.